Well, good morning. Man, it's great to see so many of you here today. We have a lot of guests in from out of town, friends and family and all that. Really glad to see all of you here. Uh, before we get into the message, there's one other thing that I want to say is that we do... Um, I wanted to talk about this myself because we have a baptism coming up um, at the end of August. It's in your bulletin there, the details. It'll be at the Walquist place on Silver Lake. And if you've never been baptized, um, I would love for you to talk to me about it because baptism is one of the essential uh, rites, one of the essential things that we do as believers. And what it does is it, it symbolizes the cleansing from sin um, and, and the, the symbolism of it is very powerful. So when you go under the water. It's like you are dying with Christ, and when you come out, you are ra- being raised to new life. And, uh, and not only that, but it's also a symbol of identifying with Christ and identifying with the church. And, uh, and if that's something that you've never done before and are thinking, you know, maybe I would like to do something like that, I'd love to have you talk to me after service, email me, call me, um, and let's talk through it and, and see if that's something that you would like to do. We would love to, to baptize people there. In addition, uh, we're just going to gather together as a church family, have a picnic, and uh, just have a great time enjoying each other and, uh, and celebrating our, the bond that we have in Christ. So I'd love to have you come and talk to me about that. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been going through this series where we are getting a bird's eye view of Scripture. Uh, And we're doing this because oftentimes when you come to a a singular passage, whether you're doing it in a Bible study or in your own personal reading, if you don't know the big story of the Bible, if you don't know where that small story fits within the bigger picture of the Bible, then you're going to have a hard time oftentimes understanding that story. And so we're giving you the... the, um, we're telling you basically the large sweep of Scripture um, so you can know then when you're studying a particular passage in the book of Romans or in Nehemiah, then you know where it fits in the overall story of the Bible. Now, of course, we started at the very beginning at creation. We talked about the fact that the book of Genesis, the, the, the creation story in Genesis stands alone among all of the other creation or origin accounts in the ancient world. Um, it tells us that the universe was not an accident. And humans are not an accident, but we were created as an intentional act of a loving creator. It also says that humans were created in the image of God. Um, Normally, the image of God in the ancient world was something that was a title that was reserved only for kings. But only in scripture um, do we see it used for average, everyday, ordinary people. And what that means, of course, is that humans have, no matter who they are, no matter what their position in society, have unimaginable worth. But it also means that we have a responsibility to care for God's creation, including other human beings, to bring about flourishing in the world. But we don't have to do it on our own. Like a good king, God gives us wisdom to be able to do that. And when we live according to God's wisdom, it brings about flourishing in the world. But apparently... We don't like to be told what to do, do we? Um, we? So we see in the story of Adam and Eve and all of the stories after that too that we thought that we knew better than God and so we decided we would, rather than take his wisdom, that we would do it on our own and we sought to be our own gods and you can read all throughout the pages of scripture that the result was chaos and destruction, a broken relationship with God, strained relationships with each other. But we also see in Scripture a God that was not satisfied with that separation, and he wasn't willing to leave people alone or without hope. 
and without wisdom. And so he initiated a covenant with a man named Abram. And, and he told him that he would use his descendants to bless the world, to bring about the flourishing of the world that he had charged Adam and Eve with to begin with. And he intended through them to reconcile and restore humanity to himself and to each other. And so he formed a kingdom of Abram's descendants. And he provided them with land. He provided them with a law to teach them how to be the people of God. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, the people of Israel didn't want God telling them what to do. Actually, they wanted a human king to tell them what to do. And so they asked for a human king. And of course, God was not thrilled about this, but he gave them what they wanted. But after he did, what they found was that throughout the whole succession of kings of Israel and Judah, there were only a handful of them, including King David, who, who did what is right. Most of them trusted in their own wisdom. Most of them trusted in worldly politics um, in order to rule the kingdom. And of course, the result was chaos and destruction, separation from God and separation from each other. And for the kingdom of Israel, that meant exile in Babylon. But like Adam and Eve, God didn't leave them alone and didn't leave them without hope. And he sent them prophets to tell them that in time, the time would come that God would send a new king to restore righteousness and to restore the people of God to their rightful status. And so the scripture reading that we have for today comes from Isaiah chapter 61, and it's the words of God to the people of Israel, promising them that there will be a new king. Isaiah 61, it is on page 509 of your red pew hymnal if you would like to follow along. Isaiah 61, the entire chapter. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of your God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs." For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. 
For he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Well, fast forward about five centuries, and the gospel writer Luke tells the story of a man named John. We call him John the Baptist, and the reason why will be very clear here in just a minute. And he was a prophet who called the people of Israel to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And his message was, was that we want you Jews to be baptized because this king that, we, that God has promised is now at hand. And so now re-identify with the people of God and be ready for this king to come. Well, while he was doing that, a man named Jesus came by and he is baptized by this prophet, John the Baptist. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 3. As Jesus was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now there are a lot of people who ask the question, well, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, when we think about baptism, of course, and I explained it earlier, we think about baptism as the forgiveness of sins, and Christians believe that Jesus was sinless, so why would he submit himself to something that symbolized the forgiveness of sins? And there are really a couple of of different reasons for it. Um, The first part is, is that not only does baptism symbolize forgiveness of sins uh, and cleansing from sin, but it also shows a solidarity with the people. And so when Jesus was baptized, he allowed himself to be baptized to show solidarity with the people of Israel. After all, he was a Jew himself, and so he was saying, I am one of you, because that king would come from them as well. But even more importantly, what I want you to see here is that this wasn't actually Jesus' baptism, it was his anointing. You see, Israel's kings had to be put in place by a prophet, by, by God. They had to be anointed. And so, for instance, after God had rejected Saul, uh, Samuel went to David's house and found him and went down the whole line. Maybe some of you know this story. Went down the whole line of David's brothers and, and God said, no, it, those aren't the ones. Do you have another one? And David was out in the field and he went and got him. He said, that's the one. And he anointed him. And, uh, and so that kind of anointing had to happen for every kind of king. Now, when uh, the, the image of the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove brings to mind this picture from Psalm chapter 2, where David writes about his anointing. And this is what he writes. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, and this is David speaking, that God said to him, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Now, kings were referred to as the Son of God. And so when Jesus is called the Christ, it means Messiah, it means King, it means Anointed One. All of those are are the same kind of images for a king that is anointed to lead his people. And so what's happening there is Jesus is publicly being anointed as the King of Israel. 
Now, a little bit later, after his testing in the wilderness, Jesus goes into the Jewish synagogue in Nazareth, Nazareth, where he grew up. And it doesn't tell us whether Jesus asked for the scroll of Isaiah or someone just handed it to him, uh, but he, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it up and he turned directly to the passage that Paul read for us a little bit earlier, and he reads it out loud to the people. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus was identifying himself as the king that was promised in Isaiah chapter 61. Now, have you ever had a situation in life where you were expecting something for a long period of time? You were expecting it, and maybe it was something that you'd never experienced before, and so you had a picture in your mind of what it was going to be like when you finally got it. Does this sound familiar to you? You know, you create these sort of mental pictures. And then how many of you, by the time that thing came along or that event happened, it was nothing like you thought it was going to be? Anyone? All right. You maybe aren't thinking of something in uh, in particular, but okay. Well, my wife and I got married in 1993. Um, we graduated from college in South Dakota in, uh, in June, uh, got married in July, and in August, we moved down to Kentucky, where I was going to go to seminary. Now, of course, we were both very idealistic. She, in her mind, you know, she was marrying this perfect specimen who was <laughs> kind and thoughtful, and, uh, you know, it was just going to be perfect, and I was marrying a supermodel whose only goal in life was to please me, you know, and of course, that turned out exactly like we thought it was going to be, Right? But when we moved down to Kentucky, we were really excited because we were moving into married student housing, uh, but we had moved down to the school sight unseen. So we'd never, see, we'd never even seen pictures of it. This, I'm going to sound old here, but this was before the internet. And, uh, and so we had never seen a picture of the housing, anything on campus. I just knew that's where we wanted to go. And so we, I guess, just trusted. So now you have to understand, my, my wife is not fancy. Uh, she doesn't have to have the best of everything, but she does love to decorate. She loves to have a nice place uh, for us to live, a nice space that we created that's our home. And so she was excited that for the first time in our lives that we were going to be able to have a place like that that we could make our own. And of course, we had a picture in our mind of what that would look like. And so when we got our housing assignment, we found out that we were moving into a furnished apartment, and the address was 22 Broadhurst Manor, right? <laughs> 22 Broadhurst Manor. Doesn't that sound great, Broadhurst Manor? I mean, you know, we brought up pictures kind of like this um, up here, Broadhurst Manor. <laughs> Um, in fact, when you Google Broadhurst Manor, this is, this is one of the pictures that comes up. And this one, you know, um, we probably would have settled for this. Um, the, yeah, right there. You know, we could, we could live with that. You know, we were, we were going we to be okay with that. Um, but when we got there, this is actually what we got. Right there. Broadhurst Manor. Now... It was, uh, <laughs> it was something. Um, well, we should have known because the cost for it was $200 a month. 
And, and even in 1993, that was not a lot of money. I mean, we could, we could afford that. And we were on the second floor, and so we climbed up the pole to get to the second floor there. <laughs> you see, notice there's no steps there, right? There, there actually, there were steps when we got there. Um, but anyway, um, and we opened it, and immediately Anne started crying, right? <laughs> she, she remembers it very well. Um, because we were expecting furnished um, here, right? And we got furnished there. And uh, we went back to the bedroom and found, no lie here, okay, two single beds, right? And I thought, wow, this is a conservative seminary here, right? <laughs> now, I, I will tell you that our years of seminary were great. And I don't know, maybe you, you, could, you would say it too. I wouldn't change a thing about it. Yeah, it, it really, it ended up being an amazing time, even though it wasn't at all what we were expected. But I think you get the point, right? Sometimes we have this picture in our mind of, of something that we think is going to be great, and it turns out to be something that is nothing like we wanted. We don't always get what we want. And this was the case with Jesus the King. See, the Jews had certain expectations of what this Messiah that would come was going to look like and what he would do, but the reality turned out to be far different than what they expected. Let me just mention a few ways that it was different. First of all, they expected him to be political, but he said his kingdom is spiritual. Okay, now, it's understandable why the Jews would expect his kingdom to be political. Okay, they resented the fact that they were ruled by the Romans. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have their own king, really. And, and so when the prom, prophets promise a Messiah, well, Messiah means king, and what do kings do? Well, they collect taxes. They make laws, and they enforce them, and they build an army that fights for the kingdom. And so the very image of king would have led them to believe that this is what they were going to be getting. But even some of the prophecies of the Messiah that we see contain some of this kind of language that would lead them to believe that he would come as some sort of political or even military king. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 11, it tells us this about the Messiah. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. So it's pretty violent language. So you can understand how they might how they might feel that this is going to be a political or a military king, and yet Jesus never even hinted that he was building an army. He never talked about the Romans as enemies. When someone asked him if the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar, it was kind of a divisive question, but he was completely uninterested in the question. He just said, pay to Caesar what Caesar's, pay to God what is God's. And he taught his followers not to hate your enemies, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It didn't sound like Jesus was about to attack the Romans. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when Je after Jesus was arrested later on in his life, he was questioned by the governor, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who asked him, point blank, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And, and this was a, an important question for him, because if he was a king, then he was a rival. And the Romans didn't take very kindly to, to rivals. I mean, the Jew, they didn't really care who considered themselves to be the king of the Jews. They just didn't like revolts. And so Pilate wanted to know. So he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. 
In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm not a political or military threat to anyone. But this would have been disappointing to the Jews because they had these expectations built up of what a king would look like and what he would do. And Jesus didn't fit that mold. And so they ended up wondering, is Jesus really the guy? That was one way that he didn't meet their expectations. Another way is kind of related. They believed that because Jesus was going to be their king, because he was going to be the king of the Jews, they expected him to be for them and against everyone else. See, they wanted a king who would destroy or defeat the Romans and put the Jews back on top. But the problem is, is that Jesus didn't intend just to be king of the Jews. He intended to be king of kings. Not only did he love the Jews, but he also loved the Romans. Not only did he want the Jews to be free of sin and oppression, he wanted the Romans to be free of sin and oppression. And while he came from the Jews, he came to be the king of everyone. And the reason violence couldn't be the answer is that when it comes to violence, there's always winners and losers. The oppressed, when they conquer, usually become the oppressor. But this wasn't God's answer. In fact, it was just the opposite. See, Jesus was a different kind of king with a different kind of power. See, they expected uh, uh, Jesus to kill his enemies, but instead he died for them. See, the greatest scandal of Jesus' ministry was that it seemed that he seemed to do everything upside down. We expect kings to be born in a palace, but Jesus was born in a barn. We expect them to have uh, royal or noble blood. Well, Jesus did because he was from the line of David, but that was ancient history by that time. And he was actually born to two peasants in an insignificant town in the country. You'd expect a king to have many servants, but instead Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The power that Jesus exercised didn't destroy people, but destroyed the forces of evil. He knew those who considered themselves his earthly enemies were only under the power of the real enemy, Satan. He came to teach, heal, forgive, and to cast out demons that held people in bondage. He freed the Jews and the Romans and anyone else that he encountered. He defended the oppressed, but when it came time for him to defend himself, he refused to fight. And instead, he endured an unjust trial and a brutal death, absorbing the sin of all of humanity, taking, his sins on ourself, uh, taking our sins on himself, so that we might be forgiven. The king who sacrificed himself for his subject. Who has ever heard of such a thing? But while Jesus was on the cross, he didn't condemn them, but he prayed to God and he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. See, this king didn't fit their mold. Now, it's easy for us to criticize them for not seeing what was coming Uh, for not recognizing the Messiah. But before we get too excited about that, we also need to realize and maybe confess that we tend to do the same thing. See, we create our own mold of what we want Jesus to be, and we try to squeeze him into it. But I would tell you today that if Jesus fits neatly into your mold and never challenges your thoughts and your desires, you probably need to adjust your expectations. Let me talk about some ways. We expect Jesus to only be spiritual and not political. Now, when I say that Jesus was political, 
I mean that his head wasn't just in the clouds, right? Um, But he cares about what happens on earth. He cared about justice. He cared about the poor. He cared about the marginalized. He cared about relationships among people and among nations. He cared about human flourishing. And so in that sense, Jesus was political. But there are a lot of Christians who want to believe that Jesus was only a spiritual king and only the one who saves us from our sins so that we can go to heaven and nothing more. Now, he certainly is that. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion where we recognize that Jesus gave his life for us and made a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God so that we can have eternal life with him. And so he certainly was that. But Jesus was also political, just not necessarily in the way we think about politics. See, when we think about politics, we think in terms of Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative and everything in between. And of course, there are Christians who identify kind of on any side of that political spectrum. But too often, rather than submitting ourselves to what Jesus taught and to go to him humbly to say, all right, King Jesus, how would you do this? We try to squeeze him into our party platform. I'm familiar with the platforms of our political parties today, and as I read Scripture, I don't see Jesus fitting into any of them. Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. You know, he's more liberal than any of us when it comes to loving and identifying with sinners, marginalized, outcast, and oppressed, but more conservative and stringent than any of us when it comes to things like marriage and divorce and sex. And and we're really good at, at drawing these lines Um, where Jesus didn't draw them and making enemies out of people that Jesus came to die for. And whether you consider yourself to be a Republican or a Democrat, liberal or conservative, chances are there are points at which Jesus would agree with your party platform and points where he would disagree with your party platform. And if Jesus never challenges your party platform, then you're probably not taking him seriously. In the same way, we expect him to be for us and against them. Following Jesus has always required people to humble themselves, first and foremost. In his day, Jews separated themselves from Gentiles and Samaritans from the Jews and different ethnicities separated themselves from each other. And we do the same thing today and in many more ways than that. We separate along party lines. We separate ourselves by race and ethnicity and male and female, socioeconomic status, elites and deplorables. But, but Jesus viewed everyone as made in the image of God. He viewed everyone as someone who is worth dying for. He also looked at all people as sinners in need of grace. Everyone a sinner, everyone loved. Now we like those words today. Those words actually sound good to our society's ears for the most part. Everyone is loved, everyone is equal. And so of course we expect Jesus to be loving but not demanding. And somehow we've built up this picture of Jesus as this hippie who's okay with anything. But while Jesus is far more loving than we can imagine, he's also more demanding than many of us would like to believe. Jesus makes demands on us. He taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He told us that when someone hits us on the right cheek, that we're not to retaliate, but we're to turn the other cheek. He said, if your eye causes you to lust after someone, pluck it out. 
which by the way, I don't believe he's being literal about that, but he is challenging our tendency to take sin lightly. He taught that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He warned of eternal judgment for the blatantly wicked, but also for the self-righteous and proud religious people. And he said that anyone who does not take up his cross daily and follow him cannot be his disciple. It's challenging. It's demanding stuff. See, Jesus is the king of a kingdom that is at the same time loving and welcoming as it is rigorous and demanding. It's at the same time more challenging than you can imagine and more rewarding than you could ever dream. Jesus is the kind of king who asks everything of us but is also willing to give us everything. And so when you come to Jesus, when he is your king, when he's the one you serve, he is also the one that will transform you into the person that God created you to be. See, when you know him, he changes everything. And so I want to end today. Let's have the worship team come up here. I want to end the sermon today just to have you reflect on a couple of questions. The first question is this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your king? Does he have the right to to command anything in your life? And what is your view of him? And the second question is this. Will you take him as he really is? Let's bow our heads for a moment. And just in silence for a while, let's ponder those questions. And, you know, certainly I know that there are various um, um, people who are on various parts of their journey with Christ. You know, some of you have been following him for a long time, and you can very easily, very willingly say, yes, he's my king. And I submit myself to him. And there are some of you who are not really sure. You're just checking it out. You're not sure if you believe in all of this stuff. You're not sure you really know who Jesus is and you want some more information and that's perfectly fine. But wherever you are, this is a decision that all of us have to make. We have to decide, who is Jesus to me? Will he be my king? Lord, I pray today that you have spoken to us and that you have opened our hearts to know who you really are. I think sometimes we have this idea of Jesus that he's one option among many, that he is uh, you know, someone who just says, oh, whatever you want to do, that's okay. I just love you. And of course, we know that you do love us. You love us unconditionally. And yet, God, we also know that you are the wise king who gives us a way to live, a way to bring about flourishing for ourselves and for the people around us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to to dive into your teachings 
and to submit ourselves to you rather than submitting what we want you to be to our views. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who maybe they're a longtime believer who still feels like, you know what, I've got a long way to go and I still try to squeeze Jesus into what I want him to be rather than allowing him to transform me. Lord, I pray for forgiveness first of all. And second of all, Lord, I pray that, <clears throat> that you would just assure them of your presence. And Lord, for those who are still wondering, do I really believe all of this stuff? Do I really believe in Jesus? God, I pray that you would meet with them today and that you would give them assurance and that even though they don't know everything about what it means to follow Jesus, that they would be willing to take that first step and say, I, I want to know more. I want to follow him. I want a way forward. And so I pray that you would help them to do that today. Lord, I thank you for this symbol that we are about to celebrate of communion, of taking the Lord's Supper together. I thank you for what it means for our forgiveness, for our salvation, for our identity in you. And I pray that as we do this, that this would not just be a ritual, but that it would give life to us as we focus on you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.